Okay, if you would, please turn to the book of Hebrews. No, not Hebrews. You're going to... I'm sick, so pray for me this morning. Turn to the book of 1 Peter. I'll be reading 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. 1 Peter 1, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you strengthen my body and my mind to deliver the intended meaning of Scripture to your people here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. For the first six weeks, the first 12 verses of 1 Peter chapter 1, we have been seeing God's sovereign action in salvation. Question. What is the only first response to what we've seen in the first 12 verses? The answer is right in our text this morning. Hope in it. Place your hope in it. For the first 12 verses, remember, Peter, by the Holy Spirit, has not told us to do anything. He's given us no exhortations on how to act. But instead, he has just unfolded Saying, look at God. He chose you by His foreknowledge. Through the sanctification of the Spirit and the cleansing of the blood of Christ. He, he says, look at that. Turn that around. View it from every side. He says to you, believer, He came and caused you to be regenerated. Born again. Look at it. Producing in you a living, saving hope. A hope in that which He has prepared very particularly for you. An eternal inheritance. Just consider it. He says all of this was prophesied hundreds of years before it was ever fulfilled in the coming and the work of Jesus Christ. Look at it. And now, finally, verse 13 comes. And He tells us what to do with it. Hope fully in it. In this grace, which culminates 
in something that's coming in the future. So that's the question before us this morning. Is that the main activity of your life? Is that what you are about? About waking up every day and pursuing your hope fully in the grace of God. First, let's deal with that word hope. What does that mean? I mean, the street use of hope in our day, it basically means uncertainty. I hope so. If you would have gone to one of the basketball games of my niece, Alyssa, last year, someone asked you, hope her team wins? Hope so. Don't expect her team to win. But we think of hope as the things that you don't expect, but I would kind of like it. That is not what this word hope means in the Bible. And it's certainly not what hope means in verse 13 of chapter 1. Biblical hope is a confident expectation and a desire of something in the future. See, biblical hope not only desires it, but it expects that it to happen. It's not, I hope so, while you cross your fingers. It is the hope that comes when, because of the faithfulness of another in a relationship from the past, you trust their word about the future. Your hope is placed in them. Hey, Joe, do you hope that your wife will, would come home tonight instead of run out on you and the children? Yeah, I do. Well, uh, Biblical-wise, I don't mean hope the way we use it. I don't know if she will or not. Maybe she's through with us. She's got a track record. I know her. I have a biblical, I, I not only, yeah, I desire that, but I fully expect her to come home. See, faith in the Bible is the larger term. Hope is faith. It's the aspect of faith that is predominantly trust or faith in promises that are still future. So when you talk about, do you believe that Jesus Christ is coming back? That's future. Yes, you could say the same thing by saying, good, continue to have faith or hope fully in it. Now, with this hope that is not only desire but expectation, hope must have an object or it's not hope. Just like a gun must have an, a target when you shoot or you can never say, I shot and hit the target. When you hope biblically, there's something that hope hits. It's the object 
of those desires and expectations. And verse 13 is clear. The object of hope is God's grace which is coming in the future at the second coming of Jesus Christ. See verse 13 again. In the middle. Set your hope fully on, here's the target, the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So when we talk about biblical hope, grace comes first, then hope. It's never the other way around. Grace, now, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to shoot the heart of hope at grace and hit it? What he's been saying is because of these extraordinary truths of God's grace in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 12, he says now, place your hope fully in them. See, that's not only the point, very simply in a clear reading of verse 13. It's been the larger point of chapter 1. That's why verse 13 begins with the word, Therefore. Therefore, makes the command hopefully dependent upon verses 1 to 12. Because of verses 1 to 12, therefore, place your hope fully in it. Because of God's grace in choosing you, because of God's grace in causing the Holy Spirit to sanctify you, set you apart, to come in you and cause you to be born again so that you are now alive in Christ. And He has thus placed that hope in your heart which is rooted in, targeted at an imperishable inheritance. Therefore, hope fully in it. One thing that this teaches us is that Christianity at its core is not a system on how to live better, on how to act better, on how to get your life in order and back on track. Christianity is first and we're talking, if there's a first, there's a second. But it is first the sovereign act of God. Only after the first twelve verses does God through Peter now say, You go on hoping fully in verses 1 to 12. Christianity is first God acting and it is secondarily us acting with a heart that believes or hopes fully in it. First, there is the objective. It has nothing to do with you subjectively. Objectively, God acts in creating in prophesying through the prophets, in sending Christ, and all summed up in what the Bible calls the good news, the gospel. God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. 
It is proclaiming an historical event with its meaning. Objectively. Then subjectively, you act by hoping in it. God's command is not in Christianity what we can do for Him. It is what He will do for us. That's why Jesus says, all you who are heavy laden, burdened, come unto Me. And I will give to you rest. That's why Psalm 147 says, God's delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor His pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him, in those who hope in His steadfast love. And so the very first response, this means the first every day, the very first response to God's Grace in Jesus Christ is hope. It is look at His grace in Scripture in verses 1 to 12 that will culminate in Him coming back and doing away with stomach viruses and vomiting and things that are 10,000 times worse. He's coming back. Set your hope fully during this time of trial on His coming back. So he writes the first 12 verses. And we're either dead to them, we're indifferent to them, we're bored at this very moment, or we apply them. And the application that the book of 1 Peter gives to us is clear. Go home in hope. On Tuesday morning, place your hope in the grace of God. Now. But Peter, do you live the real life? Peter, do you not know how hard my marriage is? Or my singleness is? Or this lifelong disease is? Or financial burden is? Or raising of children and the pain that that entails is? All of these things are constantly gathering together to sabotage my my hope. Peter? So the big question is, okay, we're supposed to hope, but how? And Peter does not leave that question unanswered in this very verse. He doesn't tell us to go hope in Christ. Which means you are placing your desires and your expectations in His grace above all these other things in the world. He doesn't just say that 
and then leave it hanging without any help. He tells us, this is how you go about it on a daily basis. And his answer is twofold. Let's read verse 13 slowly again and see it. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Excuse me, I read it wrongly like most translations. Translate it wrongly. And the ESV translates this one rightly. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Note, Peter here is not saying Now that we come to verse 13, there are three things you're supposed to do. There are three coordinate things, equal things. Number one, prepare your mind. Number two, be sober. Number three, hope fully. That's not what he wrote. There's one thing with two ways to go about it. The reason I I mention that depends on what translation you have. I think here the New American Standard Bible misinterprets it in their translation. The NIV misinterprets it. The King James Version misinterprets it. They make it sound as if there are three things that you do that are on an equal level. Do these three. When there's only one main verb, the imperative means the verb of command, which is, here's the main thing, hope. And then there are two words that modify how to go about that hoping. He says, here's how you go about in your daily life, placing your hope in Him. You do it this way, by Daily preparing your minds for action. And secondly, by being sober. So let's look at the first one. How do we hope when I know hope isn't there? First means of hoping is by preparing your mind for action. Literally, in the Greek, the King James Version translates it literally this way. This is what he's saying to them. Gird up the loins of your mind. Now, we don't gird up our loins. So what was he saying? Well, back then you did. I don't know the term. You had a skirt on, guys. <laughs> and you're going to go fishing or you gotta, you got to hurry up and walk really fast or run to the next town or you're going to start hammering nails. You gird up the loins of your mind. You, t- you gird up, not the loins of your mind, sorry. You gird up your loins and you take that skirt and you tie it around and you pretty much turn them into shorts and you're ready for action. You're ready to run. And so Peter says, gird up the loins of your mind. In other words, prepare for action. That is, 
prepare constantly to be active with your mind. Now, what does that really mean, though, for us then? What is the mind supposed to be doing that would produce hope? Because that's the logic. By preparing your minds for action, hopefully. What's the mind doing that produces hope? The answer is, hope sprouts. It grows when our minds are girded, prepared, working, running with truth. The mind is girded up with truth. You can see this clearly in the next verse. Just read verse 14. He says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Huh. In other words, he says, the reason that we were led and lived and followed the desires of the lusts or passions was because of ignorance. So somehow, in Peter's mind, to renew your mind, to replace lack of knowledge with girding your mind with knowledge, thus ignorance flees, enables you to place your hope in His grace instead of in your passions or lusts of the flesh. Therefore, if we want hope to expand, we must gird up the loins of our minds with truth in order to replace the ignorance with truth. The mind means thoughts, doesn't it? I mean, can he mean anything else other than what you think? How you are actively thinking. What you think about God what you think about yourself, what you think about the world, all of that has to do with whether you're hoping or not. Gird up the loins of your mind by thinking appropriately about God, yourself, the world. A biblical understanding like First Peter becomes really important. Because we can be church people. We can have unbiblical thoughts about God. About sin. About salvation. That when verses 5 and 6 of First Peter chapter 1 come into your life, trials and tests, they don't bring about any hope. They destroy any hope you think you had. Because your mind may have been filled with all kinds of erroneous ideas about who God is. And therefore, you don't have hope. You get angry at God. How could that happen to me? The flow of the book of 1 Peter thus far is it is so crucial to understand what he has said for 12 verses so that you would constantly have your mind active in that doctrine. 
that your thoughts would be thinking appropriately so that your heart now will be hoping in that real grace of God. Born again, elect people know better. What they know better mainly is who God is, who Christ is, what salvation is, what they are to expect in this world, and what they are to expect at the second coming of Jesus Christ. This is why he said in verse 8, remember, though we don't see him, even in the midst of this, we love him and we rejoice. That's hope. We rejoice with a joy that's inexpressible and it's filled with glory. Scripture is the truth written down. That's what it is. We're called to be active with our minds on the truth. When we read, we come to understand with our minds, and then embrace with our hearts. That's the Christian life. Now, let's think through this. Yep, every single one of our minds is fallible. This book here is infallible. The original intent of the Hebrew and the Greek New Testament, it's infallible and it's inerrant. Joe has a mind to read it and to think through it, and he is fallible. Yes, but nevertheless, we are called as Christians to renew our minds with the Word. Here's the point. There is no one on this earth, there is no professing Christian who could ever retreat from this reality of having to think through Scripture. You can never retreat from thinking into some other safer faculty of knowledge that's unaffected by sin. It's impossible. There isn't any. See, I've been around Christianity and church life enough to know that many brothers and sisters speak this way. They give objections to thinking. They give objections to thinking clearly, to defining. In other words, to saying this means that but not that. Or how can you say it meant that? Read the words. It's called theology. And those who give such objections, don't be thinking so much. It's just worship God. By definition, they are thinking. Their statements are results of their thinking. You can't escape it. Nobody can. The only question is whether in your thinking you are doing it well or you're doing it badly. So it just doesn't work to say, I, I don't want to get into like, what's the context of this passage of Scripture and think hard about that here. I, I just want to read and f- 
feel whatever I feel from it. What I feel from it, well, that's truth for me. That's what it means. So don't give me theology or, or doctrine. That statement is theology. That statement is a doctrine. That statement comes from that person thinking. Thinking badly. And thinking destructively. Drawing wrong conclusions from biblical text. People say it's about relationship. That's what Christianity is. It's about a relationship with God. Not about doctrine. Not about thinking. So we shouldn't nitpick over how should we understand this sentence in the Bible up against the one that previously came before it. Just read it and believe it. Sounds good, huh? Well, it depends. Because that's... I don't mean anything different than that. Read your Bible. Believe it. But what, what I would say to the person, because of the way they would say that to me, I would say, huh, read the Bible, take it for what it says. Okay, good, I agree. But let me ask you a question. Take what? What do you mean? Do you mean, as you open up and you see a lot of black little marks on the white page? Take, what do you mean? And they say, no, 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 no. I mean, you've got to read the words so that you would know what it means. Well, I say, well, how do you know what it means? Do you just let your eyes roll over it while you're thinking about a football game? No, you read. I mean, and if it's your language, like you're reading English, you know that letters make up words. Words are connected to words that come before and come after. They, can, they, they are constructed in little thoughts or propositions, and those propositions relate to one another. Everyone who can read on one extent or another is doing what I do in my head, what I just said there. We just don't speak that way. And you either do it well or you do it badly. All I'm saying is yes, read the Bible, take it for what it says. But to think well means to read well. And to read well means to be very active with your mind. So that the Bible can correct your wrong thinking. That you can be corrected by it. Thinking Hard about Scripture and truth is the only way to understand. There is no other way. Either you're going to do it well or you're going to do it poorly. Peter says, prepare your thoughts, your mind, to be active so that is what really counts so that you will be filled with hope in the grace of God revealed to you in Scripture. That's the first means of hoping daily. Secondly, notice, he says, hope how? By being sober. You can add the word sober-minded. Now the word sober is in the Greek there. It's the same way we use it. In English, we mean not drunk, 
not intoxicated with alcohol. And they also meant it like we use it. We're not referring to that. We use it metaphorically. Just sober up. In other words, think more clearly. He's saying, don't be intoxicated in your thoughts to the place where when it comes to thinking soberly about the grace of God with your mind because of Scripture, you're just numbed to it. Be spiritually sober. That's the means of hoping every day. Just think think about why is that one person can read a passage of Scripture. Another person reads the same passage. Or they sit and listen to the same sermon. And one person is blown away. Hope rises deeply. The other person, nothing happens. Well, one of them is not sober. One of them is intoxicated to the place where they cannot see reality in front of them at that moment. So no wonder they're not hoping in that passage of Scripture. They have been drinking too much TV. They have been drinking too much just fiddling in the garage for hours doing everything they can to keep their mind off of reality in Scripture, in prayer. And the longer we do that, if you're a Christian long enough, nod your head, you know this, the, the harder your heart is to taste and see the beauty of Scripture, the less and less does your hope in Christ rise. Because What does intoxication do? Why do people drink alcohol? Mainly to numb the pain. It's what it does. The opposite of sobriety is drunkenness. I don't want to think about reality. I want to escape. And that's what the world and everything around the Christian is. It's a barrel of whiskey. To constantly drink, which will numb your senses to the truth of Scripture, and thus you will not be hoping in the grace of God. Let me, before I close, just apply what we're seeing here to the local church as a whole. Because the local church is made up of us individuals. And we individuals, by definition, are connected to others. What if the local church were a place not of sobriety, but it were a place that enabled intoxication of God's people. What do I mean? In our text, the essence of not being drunk with the world is to imbibe and to drink fully with your mind that is active and girded up to drink holy Scripture. 
to see the grace of God in the Gospel. And God has placed all those who are His in a body, the body of Christ expressed in local settings with structure. It is this safe place that says, come and drink of that which makes you sober. But what if it started to do the opposite? What if we, the church, started to not give the miracle working libation of sobering Scripture, but just offered more alcohol of the world. Let me give you an illustration. Just it's, it's use an analogy with the local church, with your your local chapter of Al- Alcoholics Anonymous. Alcoholics Anonymous, they know why they exist. They exist for the truth that they think they have to bring sobriety from alcoholism. They have 12 doctrines. That's why they exist. But what what if somehow in this particular local chapter of Alcoholics Anonymous, they thought, we only got eight people coming. That chapter across town... They got 130. Maybe we're doing something wrong. Maybe we should now concentrate more on how to get people in here. If they so moved in such a way to set aside their core value, to set aside the purpose of their existence in order to skit more people into their building. I'll tell you what, it would be pretty easy. i got some ideas for them. Advertise that you have kegs of beer and it's free. Come one, come all. You will get And they will get more people. Well, the moment it starts to do that, it has ceased to be what it truly is supposed to be. And we in the evangelical church, many of us are doing that exact thing. Removing the core doctrines. We are removing clear, deep, unpacked meaning for the people to drink and to be sobered up again and again and again. Because though we're not of the world, we live in this keg of beer. Instead, so much, so many of us in the evangelical world have actually put out petitions to unbelieving non-churchgoers basically ask him, what do we have to do to get you to come to church? And we listen to him. 
and churches have been built on it. We're asking non-sober sinners, what should church look like so that you would be happy to attend? No. We who are being saved in the hope for any out there who is not presently saved, for them to be saved is that they and we are constantly desperate for sobriety to drink of that miraculous libation of Holy Scripture. To keep our minds active in it. Where it hits us like it never hit us before. I'm going to read for a moment. What I'm going to read has become much of my sentiment. And I hope for us as believers more and more in our church culture that you can jive with what this pastor writes here. Quote, To begin with, the older I get, the less impressed I am with flashy successes of enthusiasms that are not truth-based. Everybody knows that with the right personality, the right music, the right location, and the right schedule, you can grow a church without anybody really knowing what doctrinal commitments sustain it, if any. The long-term effect of this ethos is a weakening of the church that is concealed as long as the crowds are large, the band is loud, the tragedies are few, and the persecution is still at the level of preferences. But more and more, this doctrinally diluted brew of music, drama, Life tips, marketing seems out of touch with real life in this world, not to mention the next world. It simply isn't serious enough. It's too playful and chatty and casual. Its joy just doesn't feel deep enough or heartbroken or well-rooted. The injustice and persecution and suffering and hellish realities in the world today are so many and so large and so close that I cannot help but think that deep inside people are longing for something weighty and massive and rooted and stable and eternal. So it seems to me that the trifling with silly little sketches and breezy welcome to the den styles on Sunday morning are just out of touch with what really matters in life. God's exhortation to us in verse 13 this morning is that we not ever be Moderate hopers. His exhortation is that we hope 
fully by engaging our minds weekly and daily with the truth of Scripture. That we guard our minds and our hearts from the diminishing and intoxicating influences of the world. Remember how the Apostle John wrote it. Do not love the world, professing Christian, or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Because all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of possessions, is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let me close with this exhortation. I want to take what we have seen in 1 Peter over these weeks. I want to preface it with Psalm 43 verse 5 and just give a synopsis and a paraphrase of how everything is coming to this culmination with this command, hope fully. God says to us in Scripture, feel this way. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you disquieted and troubled within me? Hope in God. Because He who has chosen you from the foundation of the world to save you from sin and wrath. His mercy has awakened you, believer, to this matchless treasure. His mercy has caused faith to trust in this grace. He has sanctified you and is setting you apart more and more. By His grace. He sustains your faith by His grace so that you will attain the inheritance which is laid up for you. It is all a sovereign work of God. Not of you. Rest in it. Delight in it. That is, by knowing it, thinking through it, being sobered up to it, hope fully. 